You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. All right, listeners, saddle up for another edition of The Renegade Economist. And this week, I've invited back my good old friend, Gary Flommenhoff, who is a PhD candidate at the Centre for Social Responsibility in Mining at the University of Queensland. He wears many hats, though. He's also the co-founder of CLT Associates, which you can find at communitylandtrust.com.au. So he's been a long-time community land trust advocate. But uh, we're going to start off today's discussion looking at the growing new economics movement. I mean, it's been around for a long, long time since way back in the post-autistics economics era of uh, 99, 2000, 2001. And Gary, you've been around a lot lot longer than I have. Uh, What were the precursors to... uh, that French student rebellion that that started uh, basically at the turn of the century. Oh my goodness! Um, well, you know, you had um, going all the way back to Frederick Soddy in the 1920s. Uh, he was providing an alternative point of view, and uh, then you had Fisher talking about in the 30s talking about 100% reserve requirements um, uh, for on banks, and that was resurrected. Uh, recently by the IMF researchers of all places. And then you've got, uh, you moved, you know, come forward to um, uh, the ecological economist, Ken Boulding, and um, the, uh, the physicist whose name I can't think of, the, who brought entropy into economics in the, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you had the idea of the spaceship Earth that Boulding proposed. Then you had Herman Daly, with uh, steady state economics harkening back to uh, John Stuart Mill and, uh, you know, and then green economics, sustainable economics, and it it kind of evolved from there. And then the rebellion by the the French was based on the fact that neoclassical economics doesn't, doesn't deal with reality. And I forgot to mention, of course, the reformers of the late 1800s, including Henry George, uh, you know, Karl Marx and so forth, but coming back to the present day, the, the French rebelled because they realized that, that neoclassical economics didn't represent reality. It just represented a bunch of mathematical models that didn't, didn't represent reality. And the, the person who's probably deconstructed that the best is, is Steve Keen, who did, wrote Debunking Economics. Um, and then post-autistic economics turned into the Real World Economics Review, which is a, a website where you can read lots of great articles. I, I've, I've posted a, several there you know, might be the only place I can, you can publish some of this stuff. Um, and they will publish scholarly articles, peer-reviewed, that don't conform. Uh, you'd call it heterodox. So there's this whole, this whole heterodox uh, economics movement, which uh, is now sort of, uh, with this whole new, new economics um, movement folding into that, which is hard to really define what that means. It's, it's sort of general and broad. So did that uh, give you a decent summary? Yes, so there's always been debate around the economic theories of how households should be managed. And uh, 
the various decisions we make, what influences those decisions and what effects that has on the rest of the community. And uh, it's that last point there of effects on the community that's been really written off as we're focused on this drive towards the individual knows best uh, delivering uh, outcomes that uh, the community would have thought of anyway sort of thing. But uh, over time, we're recognising as tornadoes hit New Zealand and uh, flash droughts uh, hit southern Australia uh, that the externalities of uh, generations of pollution, uh, generations of inequality based out of uh, rent-seeking, the powers of monopoly continue to grow. So this new economics movement it's been around uh, for a, a long time, but it's rebadged itself in the last decade or so. And we're seeing all of these pretty well-funded foundations develop, including the New Economics Foundation, the New Economy Coalition, the New Economics Party, and there's even a cryptocurrency called the New Economy Movement. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're building up a, a head of steam, but if we really are to have a new economy... What are the principal factors that you believe uh, these organizations should be looking at? Okay, well, I just wanted to bring up two uh, of the key issues that have come up. You remember uh, Occupy Wall Street. One of them is the banking, the, the, the corruption of the banking industry. Uh, and the other is this surprising new uh, movement toward the idea of a, of a guaranteed basic income, which is coming from the tech industry. And they're, they're panicking because everybody's suddenly realizing that automation is going to um, replace everybody. And instead of turning that into a disaster, we should go back to what Keynes said, which is we should all be living this life of leisure by 20, 2020, where we only work 10 hours, 20 hours a week and let machines do all the work. But the way the economy is structured now, that would be a disaster because everyone would be unemployed and have no money. So I just wanted to mention those two. But as far as the principles that, that I think we should follow, and that there hasn't been any sort of general agreement, um, I think Polanyi, in his book, The Great Transformation, summarized the three key issues that uh, have to be addressed. And he had actually addressed land, capital, and labor, all three of them. So he synthesized together Karl Marx, Adam Smith, and Henry George together into one vision, which I don't know that anyone else has done. And in that book, he realized uh, he sort of covered the historical process of from going from feudalism to the market um, system. And he, what he realized is that there were three major flaws, and that was that they, they turned human beings into commodities, they turned land into a commodity, and they turned money into a commodity. And he said that, that the system, it'll lead to an absolute catastrophe if you do that. He called them false commodities. Fictitious, he called them fictitious commodities because they're not produced in a production process. So um, what that means is the, the best example I use, um, let's, let's start with land because that's the one um, we're both interested in. If you come, I, I wrote an article on um, Real World Economic Review. If you want to read, it's called The Polanyi Matrix for anyone listening. Um, and what happens is the reason why free enterprise works is because when there's competition, firms, companies enter into the market and, and bring new products in to compete with other products. What that does is it drives down prices and it makes us all better off because we can afford more stuff. And the, the, the best example of that is Moore's Law. 
founder of Intel, if you're not familiar, wrote a famous paper in 1965. He said the number of transistors on an integrated circuit doubles every two years. And believe it or not, what is it now, 52 years later, it's still true. It's still doubling every two years, which is absolutely unbelievable, which is why all of our electronics are getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper and, and, and more and more powerful. So that's an example where, where free enterprise works because competition drives down prices. Now let's take, take land as an example. What does competition for land do? Well, competition for land drives prices up because there's a fixed supply. You can't enter and bring you know, new, new land onto the market very easily. So it, it drives prices up. So it actually makes us all worse off. So land works exactly the opposite of, of how a free enterprise economy is supposed to work. So it's a, a complete and utter market failure. And so what they do is they continue to try to deal with it through the market, which is impossible. So that's, that's one of the key issues that has to be addressed is, is, is getting land out of the market and getting rid of speculation and, and um, you know, taking that out of it. The second part is, is money. So we've turned money into a commodity instead of a stable means of exchange. And we've allowed banks to create the entire money supply, um, which, and then use it to speculate and, and buy and sell assets, which produce nothing. And this is what Michael Hudson talks about a lot. When you, when you buy and sell assets, you're producing nothing. You're just a parasite on the rest of the system, which is what the, what the financial system, the fire sector is now. It's a, it's a parasite sucking money out of the productive economy. So the second false commodity is, is money because it shouldn't be a commodity issued by banks. And the Bank of England admitted that 97% of the money is created by banks through, through loans because of fractional reserves. So we have to take that power away from the banks and, and issue money by um, government spending it on, on infrastructure and things like that, uh, which they've done in the past through greenbacks and other means. But the banks have now a monopoly on the creation of money. And the way they do it is a 70, 80% of their loans are for mortgages. So when we allow them to create money, we're also driving up the price of real estate at the same time. And the third false commodity are, are human beings in their, in their, um, in their role as, as labor. They're basically just a, a commodity that is used in the production process, like, say, a, a piece of uh, machinery or raw material. So a human being is treated like a, a piece of iron ore or like you know, uh, a lathe or something that's just a, an input into a production process. And your labor is bought and sold on labor markets, and you no longer become a human being because the uh, owners of the uh, machinery can usually have the upper hand over, over labor. We don't have to go over that. Marx, you know, talked about that a lot. So those are the three issues that have to be dealt with. And one of the, you know, the main solution, one of the main solutions to that is for, for workers to own their own their own businesses. Worker-owned businesses is a key solution to that. So those would be the three issues that would have to be addressed in a new economy would be land, money, and labor. And um, I'm not sure that there's any consensus on that, but I think Polanyi has the most cohesive vision uh, on how to move forward on those three issues. Now, many people when listening to that would go, hang on a minute, where's the environment? Uh, That's our big challenge, climate change. How will those reforms affect or reduce pressures on climate change. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. It's the idea of treating treating land as a commodity, as a fictitious commodity. So basically, land is just and which includes all of all of nature, the all of natural resources as well. And when you just turn it into a, a commodity that's 
just part of production, you don't really care. So that's a, that's a very important corollary, uh, the idea that uh, we can't disregard the, um, the cost to the environment, which of course we do, because right now the environment is considered to have a cost of zero. So, you know, and there's no cost to, to dumping anything in it. We have regulations. So they're, you know, then you get back to the argument between do you use, you know, regulations or do you use fees and costs like a carbon tax, for example, to make it more expensive to do the wrong thing? I think that, uh, you, you know, you have to do both, but um, it probably de- it depends how extreme the situation is when in many other cases they start, that like, for example, with CFCs, they started by adding fees to CFC production to make it more expensive. And then when the system, when a, a problem became a crisis, then they jumped in with, with um, command and control regulations. So, you know, you can use different tools, but you have to provide incentives. If, if it's cheaper to make electricity from coal, then generally people will do that over solar or wind because they have a financial incentive. But if you can align the financial incentives with the environmental reality, then um, you can make you can make the change a lot easier, mm. you know. And that's where I, I think when you when you imagine land as the earth, and you consider that uh, polluting the earth is a cost, and you would be taxed on that, whether carbon tax or a trading system. I think I'd prefer a carbon tax, but that's certainly one positive. But then, when we do use land more efficiently, we have uh, the the greater concentration around the urban centres. So a lot of infill, all those vacancies we talk about disappear. And at the same time, it incentivizes people to move out of the cities, away from the gridlock and towards cheaper land sources where people can work via the MBN. They can work uh, producing the foods we we so need in a world uh, where the mass-produced um, giant farms, in a way, almost become more uneconomical and uh, more small-scale, perhaps vertical farming becomes uh, incentivized. So uh, that's certainly just part of the, the onflow from taxing the land correctly. If you've ever listened to Frances Moore LePay, Frankie LePay, she has pointed out that there's never, in, up until the present day, been a shortage of food in the world. It's simply a, a maldistribution. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're in discussion with Gary Flommenhoft. He is doing his PhD at the Centre for Social Responsibility in Mining at the University of Queensland. Uh, he's been a long-time Georgist. He's had public banking legislation uh, uh, run through uh, the Vermont Parliament. So, uh, Gary, uh, one of the things I wanted to really look at was within this new economic movement, and this whole online buzz we see, there's just one technological development after another that's meant to save us. There's a big one on tiny houses. We've got 3D printed homes. What do you think when you see you know, all these young progressives jumping on board this latest thing, earth ships, that's going to save us? <laughs> well, I think it's great that people are innovating about different types of housing. The whole idea of tiny houses, of course, is, is a way to get around dealing with the problem of expensive land. So they're actually, 
they're not addressing the underlying problem, which is the the astronomical price of land. So, so yeah, I think it's great that they're all competing to make efficient and cheap and ecological houses. I think that's great, but but they're not dealing with the with the problem, you know, with the problem of land. The other big fad these days is cryptocurrencies, and you know, I I sincerely hope that they they put the banks, you know, they they bypass the banks and come up with a new way to to end the the money monopoly of the of the national um the national banks, the central banks. But um, so far, I uh, don't see that happening yet. But um, it, it has potential. I have an open mind on that. Anything that will take power away from the banks, um, you know, would be great. Yeah, one of the issues I have with that is because so much of this progressive analysis just doesn't take into account the power of monopoly rents. We've replaced the Rockefellers and Rothschilds now with the... Uh, you know, all these new young upstarts in the blockchain world who, who got into Bitcoin early and all of a sudden they're the ones at the top of the pyramid who are making all this easy money off everyone else. So it's not really changing the paradigm greatly. It's just changing who's making some of the money out of this money creation. Yeah, Bitcoin is just, all it is is digital gold. It's a speculative commodity. It's nothing more than that. It's just digital gold. So even, so so just think about what you just said. Let's say we change the entire money system away from dollars and, you know, liras or whatever, euros, yen to cryptocurrency. Okay. That doesn't change the land monopoly. You, you know, you'll have astronomically inflating prices of land in, you know, in Bitcoin or in, you know, whatever the latest. Ethereum or whatever the latest digital currency is, it still doesn't change the underlying uh, problem of uh, of the land competition for land driving up its price. You basically have to. This is why there's and there's several ways to to address the land issue. There's the the you know the classical tax issue, collecting rent. There's there's take there's a municipalization which Singapore and Hong Kong have done, and then there's the idea of taking land out of the market entirely. And putting it into trust, and so far that's the only one that seems to be able to stop the the ever increasing inflation in land, which is the reason why I'm I'm deal I'm trying to um, get that started in Australia. I lived in a land trust community for 10 years in the United States, and the only one that has a legal restriction on the owner retaining the um, the capital gain. So so far it's the only one that's been able to stop that that dynamic because the land is literally taken off the market legally and. The land trust in Burlington never put it back on the market. It's, it's taken out and stays out. They have 3,000 properties, and virtually all of them have never gone back into the market. So it's a way to, uh, to to solve that problem. I'm not saying the other solutions won't work, but Community Land Trust has been one that has proven to work uh, for the last 25 or 30 years. Uh, but to, to, to go back to your question... The, the cryptocurrencies do not solve the underlying land problem, nor do they solve the underlying speculation problem. These are still commodities. One of the few people who ever really addressed it was Borsodi came up with a, a, a currency called the constant, which maintained a constant value in relationship to a basket of commodities, commonly used things, you know, food items and, and industrial things. And so you have to have a stable unit of account in order to have a decent currency. Otherwise, it turns into a an asset that people speculate with. And that's what Polanyi was talking about, turning money into a, a fictitious commodity where it should be a public utility that has a stable value. But right now it's just a commodity that, that banks and financiers use to speculate. So that's the second um, uh, fictitious commodity in, in Polanyi's view. 
Mm, the constant. Okay. What about yeah. uh, what about uh, Silvio Gasell with his concept of demurrage, where each month the value of currency actually depreciates, so it penalizes people for hoarding currency and encourages them to spend it. Yeah, um, and Charles Eisenstein, you know, wrote a book about that, but. I'm not so sure about that because it increases velocity. The whole point of it is to increase the velocity of money. And so, you know, you're going to have more churning. So that actually you have more, it's going to increase consumption, which is, which is not good environmentally. So, so I'm not so sure that's a good idea because it's going to um, uh, have an environmental cost associated with it. I, I would prefer that we have a stable, a stable unit. I mean, their idea is that you're going to have money simulate real commodities that rot and decay that can't be kept for very long and have to get used. But I'm actually, among alternative currency people, I'm actually, I actually don't tend to go along with the idea of demurrage. I think it might have uh, bad environmental effects because people will be encouraged to consume more. Well, that is one of the challenges as uh, the weather does increase in its extremities, uh, how do we get back to uh, a sustainable footing for society? And people have talked about the need for removing GDP and moving towards uh, gross national happiness or, or some other sort of measurement of growth. And uh, for mine, I've always thought, look, we need green growth and we need lots of it really quickly. But uh, where do you sit there in terms of us returning back to uh, a more sustainable footing? Well, um, yeah, alternative uh, indicators, economic indicators are extremely important. And, you know, I worked at the Gun Institute and Herman Daly and Bob Costanza have been working on that for 20 years. And so I'm very familiar with all of that. And I think it's great because GDP um, is completely useless in measuring a sustainable economy. It actually is like taking the the debit and credit sides of your bank account or your checking account or even your bank account and adding them together. So all it does is it tells you how much is going in and out. It doesn't tell you whether you're ahead or behind. So it's absolutely absurd. In fact, the guy who's created it, um, Kuznets, he said, don't use it as, an, as a measure of welfare. It's not, but the people did it anyway. And, and, and it's, it's, it's completely obsolete, it should be thrown out and um, you have to because what it does, it doesn't count any. It doesn't have a negative side at all. It doesn't subtract anything. So there's lots of other indicators that are much better, like the genuine progress indicator and uh, indicators of sustainable economic welfare and um, the um, planetary happiness. Whatever. There's all kinds of better ways to measure welfare. The GDP is like the worst way. All it does is it tells you how much is going in and out, how much money is spent, and it doesn't tell you, um, you know, whether you're ahead or behind. Um, so it's really silly. Gary, one of the things that is driving this new new economics movement is the rapid um, privatization of everything under the sun. And uh, yeah, this new enclosure of the commons is something I know you're very concerned about. Uh, where are you seeing uh, the, the needed policy levers on that front? Yeah, well, the... Uh the banks are basically private. They're basically enclosing everything. They're taking over um, everything, including government. So that's the problem. When they control government, then they control everything. So they basically turn governments into subsidiaries of of corporations or even or even you know the the central banks. So 
um, the people no longer have any influence. And there was a famous study done in the U.S. showing that public opinion had zero statistical influence on on government uh, policy from 1980 to 2011, I think it was. So, yeah, um, everything is being financialized, and then they're using that to take over everything and, and privatize everything. So we have to... Uh, uh, that's how the banks the banks rule the world is by because they have the power to create money from nothing and and then they use it to jack up the price of real estate and then they use that financial power to impose austerity to make sure everybody pays back the interest on the loans that they've loaned that they that the people have borrowed which are completely unnecessary because governments this is something the the MMT people say government does not have to borrow money from banks and that's that's what they're doing currently they government can issue it directly interest-free. So that's that's one of the key things. And the next thing would be to take away the power of money out of um, from government. So I would start with those two, probably. There has to be something done about those ratings agencies, too. Uh, it's also short-term uh, when it comes to ratings agencies. And uh, they're the ones that have demonized public debt and, well, behind the whole neoliberal charade, They've demonized public debt whilst uh, basically looking the other way on private debt. Well, you know why? In the, in the GFC, the reason why the rating agencies were, were, were fraudulent was because they're paid by the, the banks that they were auditing. So how objective is that? So they're basically being paid off to look the other way. So you can't have – it's a complete conflict of interest when, the, you know, you – the agency auditing the bank is getting paid by the bank. So they have to have a uh, an objective auditing system, which the U.S. tried to do. And then, you know, the the uh, legislature, uh, you know, the Congress has tried to strip all the, the guts out of it um, so, because they really don't want any oversight. They want to if they want a free hand, they want uh, they want the uh, unregulated uh, financial industry. And uh, you might remember that Greenspan had to testify to Congress. He says, I was shocked. I was just shocked that the financial sector didn't regulate itself. He said, it went completely against my ideology. He said, yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, I was wrong about that. <laughs> but what have we learned? <laughs> Nothing at all. We've now got Nothing new financial all. tools that are commodifying uh, housing at a rate of knots. And uh, yeah, it's ever so harrowing. As we, we come to a close, Gary, uh, let's hope we can uh, somehow rebuild the power of the state to hold corporate influence, a rent-seeking influence at bay, and from that uh, have some sort of checks and balances between uh, business, government, and the legal system. I don't think the state's going to do it. I think the people are going to have to take it power into their own hands and do it collectively. The state is, is not going to do it for us unless we force them to. That's what, that's what Roosevelt said when he, when he implemented the New Deal. He said, make me do it. Otherwise, I can't because the, the, uh, the, the industrialists will not let me. So we have to make them do it. They're not going to do it on their own. Well, Gary Flomenhoff, thank you so much for joining us here again on The Renegade Economist. Thank you for, uh, for, for inviting me. I appreciate it. All right, listeners, that was Gary Flomenhoff from communitylandtrust.com.au. Check out uh, his work in the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. All right, thanks for your support. Thanks for the emails. See you next week.